0: Well, good morning, Marcel. How are you? So good to see you all. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Well, today is a special Sunday. Christians throughout time and across the world have celebrated Palm Sunday. That. Memorial, remembering the Sunday before Christ's crucifixion when he entered in triumph to Jerusalem. Triumph, but not in a way that people thought about it. They were looking for a king, a king who would conquer, not a king who would be slain. And so in this really weird mixture of saying the right things, but not necessarily saying it for the right reasons, the people shouted to Jesus, Hosanna, which means God save us now. And it's no surprise then for us to see that that desire for Israel that had boiled over in the moments before Jesus' death had been brewing all the way back in the story that we're reading today. That You can draw a direct line from Palm Sunday, the people crying, Hosanna save now, to how God had promised that he would save Israel. He would save them. In a, in a specific quality, that a type of blessing would be given to them, and he would save them in a specific quantity, that he would give them land, he would give them a kingdom, he would be their king, and so the people of that day wanted this so badly to be true of them, but God was working in a different way. He was fulfilling part of their hope that God would save them now. He did, in a spiritual sense, and, uh, he, but he leaves, for the rest of us, even today, a hope of future redemption or salvation. All of that we're going to look at today as we continue in our study of Exodus, looking at how God called people out of darkness into the marvelous light. So over the past few weeks, we've seen God preparing his people to enter into a promised land, a, a land that he was preparing for them. They had been previously strangers in a foreign land, but now they were gonna be free in their own homeland. They had previously been slaves under the evil Pharaoh, but now they were going to be able to be true living Worshippers of the true and living God, and uh, God, as we saw a couple weeks ago, wanted them to live differently, and He wanted them to worship differently. That's an important thing to remember, because today we're going to see a little bit more of what that's going to look like—the different type of worship that Israel is being called to. Uh, If you remember a few weeks ago, one of the points that we made uh, strongly was that um, the reason God doesn't want you Committing idolatry, the reason he doesn't want you looking for uh, all of your value and purpose and meaning, all these things in, in, in the gods or the idols, is because a theme that develops throughout the Old Testament is that you become like what you worship. And so God uh, was concerned that the Israelites would worship material idols that are made out of wood and stone and gold and silver and bronze problem is, even though those things have ears and they have eyes, they cannot hear nor nor can they see, right? So the longer Israel would worship those idols, would worship the Canaanite deities, they would become like them, deaf and blind to truth. But the inverse is true, right? Because the longer you worship God, the more you become like him, the more, uh, not, not in a being sense, but in the way that you love, in the way that you hear, in the way that you see, and in the way that you live. And so God is very concerned with true and proper worship of him in the midst of a culture that's worshiping anything but. And uh, one of the really peculiar ways that Israel was going to distinguish itself in its worship from the other ancient Eastern cultures around them, specifically Canaan, was what we learned about last week, which is the celebration of Sabbath. It's when you do nothing. And that's the point. Because God wants Israel to remember that they do not find their identity in what they produce, but rather they find their identity in whom produced them. So all of these things, we're going to see again, snippets and callbacks and allusions to everything we've been talking about so far, because essentially God's been laying out for them the law, we've been exploring the law and the why of the law, but now in this passage, we're actually going to take a little bit of a break from that, it's kind of an interlude in between God giving his law and giving his why for the law, and uh, showing us the promise that is a ahead of us. One day, Israel is going to receive the land, and not only be a people of God, but a place where people could learn about God. But to get there is going to take a lot of trust on their part. You could imagine at this point in the the story, Israel is listening to God, they're receiving the law, they're they're hearing the promises, and they're kind of like, well, how is that going to work? Like, how are we going to... Get that? How are we going to achieve it? How are we going to get there? And I, I sense a little bit of myself in this text, and I'm sure you do too. In that, um, the, the 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 calling on Israel is becoming clearer and clearer and clearer as we get, as we go verse by verse. But as that calling is getting clearer, the question in the back of their mind is probably growing louder and louder. Like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? How am I going to accomplish it? Has God ever put something in your life where, you know, it started out as this kind of vague concept, but as the days or months or years go by, his calling on your life becomes clearer and clearer. And so no longer do you have an anxiety about what does God want me to do with my life and more like, well, how am I going to accomplish that? God has clearly given me a direction to walk in, but how am I going to get there? That's where Israel is right now. He's given them a clear direction. He's given them a clear calling. You're supposed to go here. You're supposed to be these kinds of people. And now instead of frightening about what their future looks like, they're probably frightening about how they're going to get it done. And that's why God takes this pause here for a moment. And he answers the question like this. You're not going to get it. I'm going to give it. So you don't have to worry about how you're going to get all of these things that I'm calling you to. You just need to trust and obey that I will give it to you. And so we open up this passage in verse 20, chapter 23, with one simple word, and that's all I want sp- to, to, to stay on for the moment. It's the word behold. It's a rare word, even in Exodus. But it's an even rarer word in your life, in your typical vocabulary, unless you're a weirdo. Because who says, behold, right? If you have a coworker that returns from a 15 minute bathroom break and says, behold, I have returned, (laughs) like you're scooting your desk away from that guy, right? So we don't really use this word very often, but it's a really important word, and here it's important because it's giving us kind of like a stamp on what God has been telling His people so far. So I want to look at it. Behold, um, in in Hebrew, is kind of like a divine finger snap. It's a hey, pay attention to this. This is really important. And the first time God does this in Exodus um, is uh, is in chapter. 3 verse 9 when he says, now behold, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me and I've seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. So God's speaking to Moses in this moment and, and God wants Moses to pay attention to this. He says, look, behold, I know Israel's in a helpless state and I am preparing to rescue them. I'm going to do something about it. Now, the last time we saw the word behold was after God actually rescues Israel from Egypt, after he redeems them from slavery. And in chapter 19, verse 9, he says to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and you may also believe forever. So, before God wanted Moses to pay attention to the fact that he is preparing to redeem his people, the second, that that next time we see God is preparing, his people to be with him. Say, get ready, because I'm coming to you. I've redeemed you, but now get ready. I'm coming to you. I want to be with you. And now we see this next kind of phase or evolution in these beholds, verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I prepare. Behold, I want to rescue you. Behold, I want to be near you. Behold, I'm preparing a way so that I can live with you. We can live together, the God of the universe and my people. So there's two things uh, here that that I want us to consider, what God's doing for his people and, and how God is doing that. Just off of this first verse alone, we can first see that God is preparing a place for his people, which means the people are not preparing a place for their God. Now, that, that may seem like a throwaway point, but it's really important. and It'll come back later in the sermon. If God is preparing a place for his people, that means the people are not preparing a place for God. And it's already giving us a hint in how God redeems. All of Israel's neighbors in Canaan will have prepared a place for their gods because their gods are dependent on their worshipers. The Canaanite gods will need to be created out of idol, wood. Or, uh, the idols have to be created out of wood and, and material. They need to, some place to live in the houses. They're dependent. We'll return to that. But just know for now, God is reversing that expectation. He said, our relationship's going to be different than the relationship that you see in your Canaanite neighbors and the gods that they worship." The second thing we need to notice is that God is uh, doing all the work necessary to be with his people. God is the one that's preparing, not them. And uh, this is a pattern that we have seen of God's gracious character replayed over and over and over again, so it really shouldn't surprise us that we see it here again. I mean, think about it. God didn't wait until Israel was strong and numerous in Egypt to save Israel. When When he looked across all the nations of the world, And he was looking for the one that he wanted to have a relationship with. If if you were God, the one you would look for, the one that's strong and mighty and powerful and numerous. And uh, God does not choose that nation. He chooses one that's weak and under slavery and small. In fact, uh, Israel is straight up told this. Later in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 7, The word says, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It wasn't because you were more numerous, or I'm sorry, it wasn't because you were more in number than any people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were the fewest of all peoples. So God doesn't wait for Israel to be great in number. He chooses Israel when she's small. God didn't uh, demand Israel to achieve some kind of state of holiness to rescue her. So we have to remember, too, that um, just because Israel was enslaved in Egypt doesn't mean Israel was morally and ethically perfect. They weren't morally and ethically sinless. God didn't choose Israel because she was perfect. And we're told twice in Scripture And most famously in Romans chapter three, that no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks a God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. And that applies uh, no matter when we are in this scripture with the one exception, the Lord Jesus. So Israel is a nation of sinners, even though Israel is in slavery. And we can clearly see that when you read the story because who's the best of them? It's Moses. And think about all the times that Moses failed. He didn't want to go into Egypt in the first place. Then when God had to kind of like coax him into going, uh, he he ended up being a coward from time to time. Oh, let's start at the beginning. He murdered a guy. So there's that, right? And then I I think the the thing that like should have... I think I said it when we preached it. Exodus Exodus should not go past chapter 5. Because Moses went to God when the plagues started happening and they were causing Israel trouble. And Moses said, Lord, why have you done this evil to your people? I wish you would have never sent me here to begin with. Like if I was God, I was like, okay, (laughs) guess we're done. But I'm not, which is great because he is far more gracious than we can comprehend, okay? So Israel is not morally, ethically holy. She's still a nation of sinners. So God doesn't wait for Israel to clean herself up, to to make herself holy, to get God's attention and, and to love her. God heard Israel's groaning, heard his people. And that's what caused him to move. It wasn't who Israel was. It was this... Empathetic desire to see who Israel could be. Uh, hearing Israel and, and remembering the promise that God had made to their ancestors. God heard their groaning. Exodus 2, 25? 24 through 25. Uh, heard their groaning. God remembered his, his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Uh, God saw the people of Israel. He knew. It was... Hearing that groaning from them that so moved his heart to actions. And here we see, as we're going to see over and over and over again, essentially the gospel in embryo, this, this seedling, this, this beginning of the gospel message growing in scripture. That God wants you as his own. And uh, he's not willing to wait for you to achieve some kind of state of holiness for two reasons. One, you can't, and two, even if you could, you wouldn't want to. So if God waited for every single human being to be as moral and ethical and sinless as his son, he would have precisely zero followers. Just as Israel could not gain power as slaves under Pharaoh, so we cannot escape our spiritual slavery under death. Without Christ, that's the point of Romans 6. And uh, God also will not demand you clean yourself up before you approach him, because again, you can't, because again, you won't. You don't want to. And just as Israel could not worship God truly in Egypt, being dead to him and alive to Pharaoh... So we cannot be good and holy worshipers of God on our own because we are dead in our trespasses and sin. Paul says that like three times. So the gospel isn't about what we do. It's about what God does. God listens to the groaning of your heart in sin. He hears every heartbreak, every disappointment, He hears every exhausted search for love, every quiet confession that something's not quite right, but I don't know what to do about it, but I can't let anybody else know that's how I feel. And he remembers his love for the world, for sinners like you and me. And so what this ought to be a reminder for us to see how Israel went from groaning to freedom to the precipice of a promise is that uh, we need to not cry out to whatever and whomever controls us in this world but to cry out to God and to God alone to give him our groanings to cry in the spirit allow him to come up with the words even if you cannot he hears he's listening to you how do I know because God is a God who sends he sends we know in the gospels he sends his son his son sends his spirit But even before we get there, we see that God is ascending God for the purpose of redemption in response to groaning. That's what we see in verse 20 again. Reread it with me. Behold, I send an angel. Sending is how he responds. Sending is how salvation comes from God. He sends. I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Who is God sending with angels? An angel to guard and bring you. Like that could be a sermon in and of itself. There's so much there. Um, so I want to compact a few thoughts here because I think they're, it's, it's really powerful. First, an angel. What's an angel? What's an angel? What what does angel mean? Anybody know? Messenger. <laughs> okay. So uh, angel just simply means a messenger. In other words, an angel is a being who brings the word of God to an audience. So put that in your back pocket. We'll come back to it. Second, the fact that God will send an angel to guard them it means a few things. One, there's difficulty and there's danger ahead, okay? If there wasn't difficulty and danger ahead, then you wouldn't need a guard. Second, God is not asking Israel to do something he's not willing to leave to chance. He's not about to send them into the promised land with an instruction manual and then, like, wait and be like, I hope that works out. <laughs> no. The angel is going ahead of Israel, not merely along with Israel. You see that? God is sending the angel ahead to guard, not just walking along them like some kind of disinterested observer. God's leading. He's charging forward instead of following. And third, the angel, this word of God, word from God, this messenger from God, is leading them to a place prepared for God's people. And I think that's a really big gospel connection that we we can't walk away from. Because if God preparing a place for you sounds familiar, it should. We saw it in John 14 when we were doing our study of the gospel of John, you remember? Jesus says to his disciples who are worried about the fact that Jesus just said, you know what, I'm not going to be with you forever. What do you mean? Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Does that sound familiar? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. Where I am, you may also be, and you know the way to where I'm going. So here we have a few things to consider. First, remember that John describes Jesus as the Word of God, doesn't he? To see the connection to to Exodus here, Uh, how how does John's gospel open? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Word of God is his Son. What does angel mean? messenger, bringing a word of God. Second, as God prepared Israel a place in the Old Testament, so the word of God, Jesus has prepared a place for us in the gospel. Again, it's God who does the preparation, not us. And third, as God sent an angel to take Israel to this prepared place, God has sent his son into the world and who will come again and take you to the place myself, he promises. You see, what we're learning in Exodus and what has been revealed to us in the Gospels is that salvation is a place pre-prepared. Salvation is a place pre-prepared. It's not something that, that God is improvising. It's not a plan B. God pre-prepared his plan of salvation before the foundation of the world. It always involved his preparation for his people. It always would involve him sending. And this this is a message that Israel not only needed to hear at this time, but one that they also needed to experience because Canaan is filled with restless hearts serving dead gods. And our culture is filled with restless hearts serving dead gods. And whenever God's true worshippers introduce God's true way, whether it's in deed or word, there's going to come conflict. Whether it was true for them in ancient Israel, and it is true for us today. In Israel might have mistaken that conflict as a sign that God's promises aren't true. I think this is the thing that one of the things that God is concerned about here, which is why he's taking time to pause from giving the law to telling them how he's going to accomplish what he has set out. Because we have this silly notion that um, that if you are within God's will, you are completely safe Uh, you are in full tranquility, everything you want is going your way, nothing can ever go wrong, but then the second that 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 top of your life starts to wobble and spin, God must hate me, Uh, God doesn't love me, I'm outside of God's will. If I'm experiencing conflict, if I'm experiencing opposition, then maybe God has made a mistake or, or I have made a mistake. If I'm a Christian, aren't things always supposed to be going well? No, not necessarily. If you're a Christian, things are always supposed to be bringing God glory. And God brings himself glory in a manner of ways. He loves to bring glory through the means by which the world would say God is absent in that place. There's no way God could use that, right? The pinnacle example I could think of is the cross. (laughs) Uh, Is God receiving glory through the crucifixion of his son? Yes, the answer is unequivocally yes. And yet the world would look at that and think to themselves, there's no way there is glory there. So God does not want Israel to go into the land of Egypt to experience opposition and to think to themselves, this isn't going according to plan. Which is why he's telling them far in advance no, you're going to experience trouble, which is why you need a guard. Because, and here's a paradox you will find rest and joy in trouble. Not because rest and joy go hand in hand by their very nature, but because you are being led through, you are being guided by. God is before, he's walking in a place where you are, having already been there himself, to a prepared place. This is, sometimes God calls us to difficult things, to, to places and to times and to seasons of conflict. This is why God says in verse 21 through 23, Israel, you're going to a place where there's going to be conflict, but there I will bless you, I promise. It sounds crazy, but it's true. So, pay careful attention to him, the angel, God says, and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. That's huge. But if, here's a condition, you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and Hittites and the Perizzites the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, I will blot them out. What God promises Israel is huge. Here we can't miss it. Even though he calls us to difficult things, God is the one who's going to win the battles for us. God wins our battles for us. How many of you have that on a t-shirt or a coffee mug? Okay, God wins my battles. He's winning my battles. Hey, that phrase feels a little stale and cliche sometimes, doesn't it? I think it's because it's been appropriated by this weird subculture pop Christian theology, right? God, God wins my battles, right? Well, what are your battles? Oh, this is a tough one. Well, tell me, share with me, what is the battle God is winning for you? Well, there's this boy, his name is Billy, and he's ghosting me. And I thought it was going somewhere, but I just got chest God. Okay, I guess, is there any other battle that you think God is winning for you? Um, Like, look, uh, God cares about your material well-being. God cares about your relational well-being, okay? If he didn't, he wouldn't, through his son, tell us that he dresses the flowers of the field, feeds the birds of the air, he wouldn't tell us it's not good for man to be alone. God cares about your material and your physical well-being. But when we think about God winning our battles for us, those are all lowercase b battles that have to be framed in the capital B battle. The battle that God is winning for us, right? And I mean that. I says, we'll blot them out. Did you notice that in the text? Not, I'm going to prepare you to blot them out. We're going to go through boot camp and I'm going to teach you how to fight. And then I'm going to pat you on the back and wish you good luck. He doesn't say that. He doesn't even say, I will assist you in blotting them out. He makes a declarative statement of essentially a victory I will blot them out, which means God wins our battles for us. God doesn't simply win our life battles for us. The ultimate battle that God has won for us and is winning for us and will win for us is that he's destroying Satan's sin and death. And so every other life battle, the material the relational has to be framed within that major battle that he is winning for us. Even the battle that God would win for Israel to get them into the land, as major as that is, has to be framed in the fact that this is just a foreshadowing or a foretaste or a dress rehearsal or a peek behind the spiritual curtain for the ultimate battle that God is winning against Satan, sin, and death. And that battle, we see, has its conclusion at the end of Scripture. In Revelation 20, verse 14, the death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And you see, for believers, this blessing is so incomprehensible that when you see it and when you experience it, you're going to be like, Billy who? What's money? I want that victory. I want that battle that God has won for me forever. And Jesus says, here you go. Because he alone has gone to prepare a place for you and he's returning, he says in John 14, to take you to that place. And as you go to that place, you are going to pass this scene of death and Hades being thrown into the lake of fire where all evil and all injustice and all tragedy and all wrongs and all sin will burn and destroy forever. And you will be so overwhelmed at that sight that you will weep One last time, for he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's the battle God is winning for you. That's the battle God is preparing Israel's hearts to receive. So what I want to encourage us here is to take a step back and to think about this. If Israel believed that the best God had for them was what they were about to receive in the promised land, they're selling themselves short. Because there's a greater battle and a greater promised land to come led by a greater messenger, the word of God, okay? And the same thing happens to us. We're in the same temptation. If we think that the life battles God gives us victory for are wonderful, we, we, they, they deserve all of his praise, that so he receives glory, but we think that's it, and that's all God has for us, We're selling ourselves short. He's got something so far beyond human comprehension that we can only hope in full anticipation with joy to experience at the coming of his son. So don't settle for watered-down gospel promises. Always look past the small yet important skirmishes to recognize that there's still a last battle that God has already won for you He's already prepared a place for you. He wants you there. It's not that God doesn't want to win small battles for you, but he wants you to recognize that those small victories are meant for you to look beyond. If you like that, if you liked what I did in your life there, wait until you see what I'm going to do with the new heavens and the new earth. So the, 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 the most satisfying victory ever is still yet to come the one where the king Jesus says to everything wrong enough is enough I'm done and the one where he turns to believers and says well done good and faithful servant I know it was hard but I was always there and now you're here you're in the place I prepared for you just like I promised and it's going to be like this forever God is preparing a place for Israel God is preparing a place for his people The angel will go ahead. He will not go along. God will not ask Israel to blot out their enemies. He says, I will blot them out. And as we see in their story, through their obedience, they get a taste of God's action in his will in making that true. So how should Israel respond to all of this news? I think actually the answer to that question is is back a little ways. Verse 22 had that conditional statement if, right? Uh, Verse 23, 22 an angel's going to go before you um, I'm sorry verse 22, if you carefully obey his voice, that being the angel, and do all that I say. So there's the condition. God does, we respond. God does, God acts, he moves, we respond. God sends an angel, we follow. God sends his son, we repent, right? So what does that repentance, what does that following look like? What should it look like for Israel? Well, God gives a very clear answer here. It's true and living worship. So something we've already seen before, but we're gonna see it again. And uh, for the rest of the passage here from 24 to 33, it's kind of like uh, bracketed with, Prohibitions against idolatry and permissions to worship the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Read it with me, 24 through 25 and 32 through 33. You shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God. Verse 32, you shall make no covenant with them and their gods, they shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So, how should you respond to this awesome news that God is winning your battles? He's taking you to a prepared place. God says, simple, just worship me, enjoy me. Uh, let me be glorified in your life so that you can be blessed. It's a question, why, after everything that God has done for Israel so far, would they even be tempted to consider worshiping somebody who's not God? I mean, think about the laundry list of things that God has already done for them. And you would think to yourself, well, that's insane that Israel would ever consider worshiping other gods. And then you look in the mirror, yeah. <laughs> right? Everything God has already done for you, for me, for us as individuals, and yet we still find our hearts uh, looking to please other gods in our culture, other powers. Why would Israel be tempted to uh, to worship the the Canaanite gods? These gods are like... These gods are really interesting. In some ways, they're not very unique among the ancient Near Eastern culture. Some ways they are. But what I I find fascinating is that um, the the Canaanite deities were believed to have incredible power, and yet they were still very dependent on people. So, for example, um, one Canaanite deity could promise uh, Canaanite men military victory. Um, for, for, for Canaanite women, one of the uh, goddesses, um, Asherah, would, would give fertility, um, like material blessing, right? I'll give you, I'll give you wealth and these types of things. So they, could, they had all this power to give, but what's interesting to me is that they couldn't feed themselves. Like the Canaanite gods could give military victory, they could create babies, they could heal the sick, for example, but they couldn't even feed themselves. And for this reason, they relied on people to feed them. So the Canaanites would plant, the gods would send rain, people would harvest the food, and then they would go to an altar and they would burn it. And in in that burning of the harvest or of their livestock... The the food would just kind of cross from this natural to this supernatural immaterial realm where the gods would then be able to consume energy and then they would they would they would be able to continue to to bless the people ostensibly. This is how this system worked. Major problem with that: the gods are dependent on people. Which means they're not really gods. They're weak. They're powerless. Who is God against these gods? I think this is, is such a, 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 a neat reminder for us of how much we're like Israel and that we just need to be reminded of who God is. And yet, so unlike them, because we've been given insight uh, post the cross and resurrection of who God is and what he has said. So if the, if the Canaanite deities were dependent on humans for their energy... Is God like that? No. Should the Israelites know that by now? Yes. And uh, the reason I would say that is because of how he's been revealing himself to the Israelites. So you go all the way back to Exodus chapter 3. We've been here a few times. But I want to come back here uh, for, to, to, to draw to our attention a point that I've, I don't think I've yet made on, on a Sunday. And that is, uh, how did God I- introduce himself to this generation of Israelites? Well, he, he began to do so through his interactions with Moses first, right? In the burning bush. And the revelation that uh, he, he just is. He says, I am that I am. So let, let's read those two passages. Moses was keeping the flock. In Exodus uh, 3.1, he's in the wilderness at a mountain. And then in the verse 2, it says, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame, a fire out of the midst of a bush. Moses looked and behold, the bush was burning and yet it was not consumed. A burning bush that's not consumed. So that's one way God's revealing himself to Israel through Moses. And then second, he reveals himself in this way. God said to Moses, I am who I am. So remember verse 14, Moses is like, okay, if I go do what you're asking me to do, which seems crazy, (laughs) to ask the most powerful man in the world to just give me his entire labor force, which I don't think he's going to go with, but okay. Um, How am I going to get the Jews on my side? Who should I say sent me? God says, I am who I am. I am that I am. I will be who I will be. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. That's what we gravitate to immediately on the self-revelation, right? Like, who is God? I am that I am. It, it, It means that he's totally independent. He doesn't need anything. He's not dependent on anyone. If everything and everyone ceased to exist, God wouldn't. He still would be here. But God is also communicating that same thing in that bush, and that's what I want to focus on. Moses sees this bush burning, but it's not consumed. That's mysterious to us. Why is God presenting himself that way? Well, uh, how many of you have ever caught something on fire? Don't raise your hand if it was illegal. Let's say you're, you're out camping, okay? And uh, you start the fire, and uh, does that thing just burn all night? No. Fire in your fireplace, does it burn all night? No. Uh, fire in your propane tank, if you lit the fire and just walked away, would it burn forever? No. Why? Because at some point, the energy consumes its fuel source to depletion. And the moment the energy consumes its fuel source to depletion, it ceases to exist. So what God is saying, by the burning bush that doesn't consume the fuel source, is I'm not like the other gods. I will not burn my people as a source of fuel until there's no more of them and then I cease to exist. I am that I am. I am a fire that chooses to be. I am self-sustaining. I don't need you, but I want you. Or I wouldn't be having this conversation in the first place. You see, understanding God's being changes the way we understand his love for us. Because if you're a Canaanite and it's September and you're chopping away at your wheat and you're going to the altar, in the back of your mind you're like, does this God really love me or does he just want my food? And we're like that with relationships too, right? Does that person really like me or really want me or does he just want something from me? fundamental to those two experiences is dependence. That God is dependent on my wheat, right? That friend from fifth grade is dependent on my N64. He just wants to play it at my house. He doesn't really like me. And so there cannot be a true relationship of trust based on love if that dependence is there between people and God. But is that dependence there between people and God? Is it a two-way street? It's definitely a street, one way, but it's not a two-way street. God doesn't need you. The gods in Canaan needed the Canaanites. Yahweh doesn't need the Israelites, which proves he loves them, he wants them. Who is God? Here is a reminder. Don't worship like them because you're going to think that I'm some kind of dependent toddler like them. I'm not, I don't need you, I want you. If you worship like them, you're gonna start thinking I'm like their gods and I'm not. Second, what has God said? See, Israel doesn't need to know anything new. They just need to be reminded of who God is and what he has said at the end of the day. So what has God said? God said, I prepared a place for you. So. Why would you want to work for something less, to receive something less? I have something more for you. What is that more exactly, God says. For Israel, God is uh, preparing a place. It's not just a random place, it's a place of qualitative blessing and quantitative blessing. In other words, it is both rich and wide as a blessing. And that we start to see as a description of the promised land here in verses 26 through 31. So you'll notice what we've done is we've already talked about the beginning and the end of that passage, which was worship me, worship me. And here's the blessing that comes with that. That's why we split that up, okay? So here in the sandwich, the meat of the worship me is not because I need you to, it's because I want glory by blessing you. Here's the meat of it. None of you shall miscarry and be barren in the land. What, what do I say Asherah does for Canaanite women? Asherah gives babies to women. So God is saying, don't look to Asherah. Look to me. And I could go through every single one of them and we, we could see examples of that, but we'll, we'll continue here. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land I will fulfill the number of your days. In other words, you're going you're gonna to live a long time in that land. You don't have to worry about your average lifespan being 30 or something. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all of your enemies turn their backs on you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hivites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. In other words, there's going to be a transition here so that you don't miss an agricultural season and the wolves don't come and take over the land. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. Can you imagine that? Possess the land to a people who were enslaved for 400 years? The thought probably didn't even register to them in that moment. Me, possess land? And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. That's huge, by the way, if you're looking at a map. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. I mean, what an incredible quality of place God is preparing for Israel. It's gonna be a place of life, of longevity, of safety, and there's gonna be a lot of it. Before, they were a landless slave nation all held up in one city Goshen. And now God says, "Nope, you're going to be free. You're going to be spread out across a bunch of land that's really awesome, and you're going to have multiple cities." If you were to look at Israel's future, it looks successful. But again, if even if they believe the promise, they're probably asking themselves, "How would that success come to me? How is this going to ha- happen? God, I was a slave 3 months ago." And now you're saying we're going to possess land? I'm going to live past 35? I didn't even think that was possible. I mean, we really have to put ourselves in this situation of uh, how, what Israel is hearing right now is beyond their comprehension, this blessing that he wants to give them. How, how am I going to do this? How are we going to do this? I, I can't fight. I, I've just been mixing clay in. Straw for 50 years. And uh, Billy can't do that. He can't even text that girl back. All he does is he just moves the bricks. We've been slaves. We don't know anything. God, how are we going to do this? How am I going to do this? What's God's answer? You won't. I will. I will is the most repeated and consistent phrase in all of the verses that we've just read. I will. Fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror. I will make all your enemies turn their backs on you. I will send hornets. That sounds awesome for the Hivites in them. I will drive them out. I will set your border. I will give the inhabitants. I will fulfill, send, make, drive, set, give. All of the verbs are on God. And you, you will be blessed with life, in fullness, just believe me and follow my angel in. I will redeem you. Just believe me and follow my son to the place that he has prepared for you. The gospel in embryo right here before us unfolding little by little. So what should our response be? Well, if Israel's response was, to abstain from idolatry, shouldn't that be our response to? What do you mean? I don't worship Asherah poles in Egypt, or Israel, I know. And it sounds like an odd way to close a sermon, which means 30 more minutes. So that's what pastors mean when they say to close a sermon. But hey, check this out. This is the same way John closed his first letter. Look at John. First uh, John chapter five verse twenty-one. First John five twenty-one. And uh, as he's talking, he's essentially. First John is a is a user guide to the authentic Christian life, and he ends this way: "Little children, keep yourself from idols." What? Where did that come from? Well, first of all, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, so it's there for a reason. Second of all, it's brilliant because. Remember, one of the principles we're learning here about God's law is that behind every negative prohibition is a positive what? Permission. So to keep yourself from idols is to keep yourself for God. To keep yourself from idols is to keep yourself for God. To keep yourself from things that are dependent and weak and choose to burn you as fuel to use you is to keep yourself from one who is independent and strong and is preparing a place for you and doesn't need you but wants you because he loves you. Friends, let's be a church that keeps ourselves from idols so that we may keep ourselves from this God who goes before us to prepare a place by his Son of blessing beyond our comprehension. Like the Israelites, we need to be reminded of who God is and what He has said. And so let's be a community that reminds ourselves of these things. That God wins our battles for us. That He has gone ahead of us in our life and into eternity, not just along. And that our God is one who prepares and invites by the voice of His Son. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You again for Your Word, for Your Spirit's inspiration of this tale of your people being called out of darkness into the marvelous light and how many parallels there are that we see in our own lives as fallen sinners being made saints by the power of your spirit through your gospel. So, Father, I, I pray that as we look at your people millennia ago, we see ourselves, that we would recognize that you're the same God then that you are today. You go before us that you send your son ahead of us, that you have called us into a life of blessing through keeping ourselves from idolatry. Father, we confess to you that we are idolaters at hearts, that our hearts are idol factories, and that we yearn for your Holy Spirit to renew them, regenerate them, change them from hearts of stone into true and beating, living hearts of flesh hearts that beat in time with yours, hearts that orient our mind and our souls to your son. Father, let us follow him into the great promise, the great victory battle that you have laid before us to the place that he is preparing for us right now, even as we speak. We love you. We anticipate his coming again to receive the fullness of your blessing forever. It's in your son's name that we pray these things. Amen.